We began the book of James several weeks ago now. I told you that James gives us a series of tests. And the idea is that he wants to give us these tests by which we can examine ourselves and we can examine the genuineness of our faith. And in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, that's where we've been lately, we've considered the test of our reaction to times of struggle and to times of testing. And I've shared with you five tools that you can use as you're going through times of struggle and testing and trials. And I pray for you every day that God would help you through those things and that you would stand strong and that your faith would be made strong as you endure your trials. But you know that as we considered all of that, we decided that really it's our reaction in times of struggle that actually prove the genuineness of our faith. It's how we, how we hold up in times of testing and trial that prove that our faith is genuine. And in our passage for today, we're going to move on to a second test that you can use to determine the genuineness of your faith, and that is the test of responsibility for temptation and sin. So I want you to listen closely. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's the test of responsibility for temptation and sin. Have you ever noticed, if you're anything like me, I know this is probably true of you as well, but have you ever noticed how difficult it is for people to take responsibility for their sin and for their temptation? Have you ever noticed that? You know exactly how it sounds. It starts with the word well, and then it's closely followed by a personal pronoun of some sort. You want me to help you with that? This is what it sounds like. Sweetie, sometimes I feel like when you make something to eat, you leave your dishes in the sink. And that really bothers me. And I've mentioned it several times before, and it makes me feel like you don't really care about the things that matter to me. Simple enough, right? A very simple I feel statement is spoken very gently. But then the response typically sounds like this. Well, you leave crumbs on the counter every time you make a sandwich, right? Well, you do this wrong. Well, you do that wrong. And yet you're worried about my dirty dish in the sink. Or maybe you've had this conversation with your kids. Some I'm a little disappointed that I ask you to feed the dog and it doesn't look like you've done that yet. Right? Well, she never does anything around here. Have you heard that one? And they, you know, they point to some, well, he never has to lift a finger. He never has to do anything as if it's okay for me to not do anything because he or she never has to do anything around here. So that's my reason for not doing what you've asked me to do. That's my reason for being disobedient, right? What are we doing? We're deflecting. We're turning it away. We're pushing it away. And rather than accepting responsibility for my shortcomings, what I'm doing is I'm finding a way to deflect it. I'm finding a way to shift my blame to someone else. You see, it's not really me. It's you. How about this one? When you drink that much and you act that way in public, it embarrasses me. Well, if you weren't such a buzzkill, maybe I wouldn't have to drink so much. It's not me. It's you. When you look at pictures like that on your computer, it makes me feel devalued. It makes me feel like I'm not good enough for you. Well, if you ever wanted to have intimacy, it wouldn't be a problem for me. You see, it's not me, it's you. Does that hit a little too close to home? You see, my temptation and my sin, they're not my fault. My temptation and my sin are not my fault because it was you that drove me to them. My bad choices at school are not because I'm making bad choices. It's because my parents are too controlling. 
It's not me. It's them. What do you expect me to do? And just so you know, if you do feel like this is hitting a little bit too close to home, I want you to know that this truth hits close to everyone's home. You're not alone. This happens everywhere. And I'm confident that it has happened in every home that has ever existed throughout the history of humanity. And I'm confident that it happens in every home that's represented here today. You see, it's a product of our sinful nature. It's a product of our sinful nature, and it has been the norm for every home from the very beginning of time. Did you know that? You remember the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden? You remember how that happened? You remember that after Adam and Eve had both sinned and they had both eaten from the forbidden tree? Do you remember that story? God came into the garden and he confronted Adam and this is what he said to Adam in Genesis 3.11. He said, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now I just want to pause there. Have you, Adam, eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's a pretty simple yes or no question, isn't it? Isn't that a pretty simple question? I mean, what was Adam's response? Did he say, yes, God, even though you told me not to eat of that stupid tree, I disobeyed you and I ate it. I did it anyway. That's what Adam did, wasn't it? Isn't that what he said? Take a look at verse 12. The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you see what happened here? Look, God, it's not me. Who did Adam blame? Did he blame his wife? I want you to think about that again. I want you to look closely. But certainly it was not his fault. It was the woman's fault, right? Think that through. No, it wasn't the woman's fault either. Ultimately, Adam was blaming God. I want you to see that here. He was blaming God. Look, God, why did you give me a woman like that? Do you see? Why did you give me that woman? You could have made any woman you wanted, and this apple-eating lady is the one you gave to me. You could have made anyone you wanted. You see, it's not me, God. It's you. I was doing just fine until you gave me this crummy woman. You could have designed her any way you wanted, and this is what you came up with. Do you see? So God then turns to the woman and look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said what? Well, you told me not to eat of the tree, and I knew that I wasn't supposed to do it, and I disobeyed, right? I did the exact wrong thing. Is that what she said? No. She said, well, you put this serpent in the garden, and this serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see? I mean, who makes a talking serpent anyway? You could have made the serpent to be anything you wanted, but you're the one that made the serpent. You see, it's not me, it's you. You're the real problem. And that's just the way it is. That really is just the way it is in life, isn't it? You see, in our humanity, we never want to deal with the reality of our sin, do we? We never want to deal with the reality of our temptation. It's not me, it's you. And have you noticed how early people learn to do that? At what age does your kid begin to blame other people for his problems? It happens pretty early, doesn't it? It's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's my brother. It's not me, it's my sister. It's not me, it's the dog. It's absolutely anything but me. It's not me, it's you. It's not my fault. I was born this way. Have you ever heard that one? One of my personal favorites is when someone says, well, that's just the way I am, and if you don't like it, you can leave. Never heard that, have you? 
That's just the way I am. See, that is tantamount to saying that God designed me this way. And so if you don't like my rude, loud, boisterous, obnoxious disposition, too bad because this is how God designed me. It's not me, it's you. You're intolerant. You're uptight. Loosen up a little bit. It's not me, it's you. You're the one with the problem. I don't have a problem controlling my anger. I don't have a problem with outbursts. I'm Irish. (laughs) I was born this way. You see, it's not self-examination. It's not introspection. It's not something that says, yes, I'm sorry that my behavior offends you. I'm sorry that I acted rudely. It's not that. It's too bad. That's the way I am. And I'm not changing for anybody because God made me that way, right? So it's not me. Either you're uptight or God designed me the wrong way. It's not my problem. And I want you to know, friends, that every trial, every test that you're ever going to face has the ability to potentiate sin. You need to know that. Every test has the ability to potentiate sin. Every test has the potential to produce bad behaviors and sinful reactions in your life. But you need to understand, friends, you are not a victim of your environment. You are not a victim of God's design. A bad home life does not turn you into a criminal. Wrong choices time after time after time at the point of decision, that's what does that. You can't blame your circumstances. You can't blame other people, and you absolutely can't blame God, as Adam did. Take a look at verse 13, James chapter 1. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Listen, friends, the very first thing that James does here, the first thing that he wants you to see, and this is very important, you need to know that this is a continuation of our discussion of trials and testing, but he starts by saying what? When you are tempted, not if you are tempted, it's a reminder of not if, but it's a matter of when. And you need to know that you are not alone in facing testing. You are not alone in trial. You are not alone in temptation because everyone faces temptation. That's what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Everyone faces temptation. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen that temptation is what? common to man. Every man endures it. Every man faces it. Everyone has to deal with it. But when you are tempted, when you are tested, when you sin, it is not someone else's fault. You need to get that. It doesn't matter your circumstances. You are the one ultimately that made the choice. You ultimately are the one who chose to sin. And you must recognize that the responsibility for your temptation, the responsibility for your sin does not lie with anyone else. No matter what the conditions are, they lie only with you. And God certainly is not the source of your temptation. As I was studying ancient Greek years ago, I I spent some time reading some of their ancient literature, and it was really interesting to find out that the gods of that culture and the gods of that time were really vile, and they would quite often incite or entice people to do evil things, and they would incite people to do things that were not good. In fact, everyone, of course, knows Aphrodite, and she was a great example of that. She was the ancient Greek goddess of love and of beauty and of desire and of all aspects of sexuality, and Aphrodite would then often entice people people into illicit affairs. 
That was her as a god. She would entice people into doing things that were not right. Hermes was another, also mischievous and deceitful, enticing people. But James here is making a sharp line of distinction between the the vile gods that were conceived in the sinful man of a depraved mind of man and the one true holy God of the universe. And he says, in God's character, there is no impurity. In God's character, there is no injustice. In God's character, there is no unrighteousness. There is no tinge of evil. There is no injustice. There is no wrongdoing. He cannot tempt. He cannot be tempted. He is entirely pure, and you're a product of your own bad choices. Well, I would never blame God for tempting me. I would never do that. But isn't that really what you're doing when you respond to temptation the way that Adam did? Aren't you blaming God? Isn't that really what you're doing? I want to help you understand how that applies to our lives. Can I do that? I want you to know that God created us with the ability to enjoy all kinds of blessings. He gave us the ability to enjoy certain things, and those things are all healthy, and they're all fantastic blessings. But sinful man then takes those things and he twists them and he perverts them and then he lays blame for those at the feet of God. For example, God created us with a wonderful sense of taste. Do you know that everything could taste like oatmeal to you? But God decided that he wanted you to have this sense of taste that is just phenomenal. And so he created us with this great sense of taste. And it's a fantastic blessing. But what happens then is man perverts the ability to enjoy food by overeating. And then he says, well, if God didn't want me to eat all of this great food, then why in the world did he create it? God created human beings with the ability to find sexual fulfillment. And he designed for that to happen within the confines of marriage. But man perverts it and he twists it. And he says, well, it's just a perfectly natural bodily function. It's a perfectly normal expression of my humanity. It's a perfectly normal desire. You see, I was born with this incredible passion. Listen, friends, next week we're going to talk about this a little more, but God created the gift, and when he created it, it was good and wholesome. Everything was good and it was wholesome, but then mankind perverted it. He took it to excess. He twisted it, and now he says, if God didn't want me to do it, he wouldn't have given me the ability. He wouldn't have given me the desire. It's really God's fault. Because in saying that, we're identifying God as this remote source of temptation. It's God who created the temptation, aren't we? We're saying, I'm being tempted by God. And James says, that's absolutely foolish. You're not being tempted for God. God is not responsible for your temptation. He's not responsible for it directly. He's not responsible for it indirectly. He's not responsible for it remotely. He's not responsible for it. So if that's true, then where in the world does it come from? How does sin manifest itself? Where does this temptation come from? Well, let me take you to verse 14, and I'm going to help you with that. Look at this. But each person is tempted when? When he is lured and he is enticed by his own desire. Friends, the responsibility for your sin, the responsibility for your temptation, lies only within yourself. God didn't drive you to sin. He's not the source of your temptation. The devil didn't make you do it. Your wife didn't push you into it. It's not because your husband is a bum. It's not because your marriage isn't all you dreamed it would be. It's not because your kids are disobedient. It's because you are lured and you are enticed by your own desire. 
You're lured and you're enticed by your own desire. It's the word epithumia. You are lured and you're enticed by your own epithumia. Some of you may remember some months ago when we were in the book of Ephesians and we were in chapter 4 and we were studying Paul's instruction in verse 31 that says to put away wrath. Do you remember that? And we talked about this thumos that just grows up inside of you until you snap. Do you remember that? We talked about thumos, and that's where this word comes from, this epithumia comes from that. And it's just this passion, it's this anger thumos is that just erupts in a near rage or, or even in rage itself. And that's where this word epithumia comes from. Now look, it is your own desire. It is your own desire. It is a passionate, erupting impulse that you just feel like you just can't control it, and it, you meditate on it, and you ruminate on it, and all of a sudden, it just erupts and it takes over. And originally, the word denoted impulses toward, oddly enough, food and sexual satisfaction. That's where it came from. I see it there. It's right there, right in front of me. It looks really, really good. And I want to snatch it before it's gone. Listen closely. It's there. It looks wonderful. And I can just grab it. And that's where your temptation comes from. It's not because someone else doesn't meet your needs. It's not because your husband drove you to it. It's not because your wife drove you to it. It's not because God made you Irish. It's because you have this impulse and you refuse to control it. Did you hear that? You have this impulse and you refuse to control it. And so it erupts. I want to show you something really interesting here. And I want you to keep in mind what I said about this erupting, this uncontrollable, violent impulse of epithumia. Many of you are, are aware of the recent runaway dog saga in our family that dragged out for, for several weeks. It's been all over, man, everywhere. And I'm happy to say that Vinny, the, the runaway dog, is home again for all of you who have worried about that. And I want to just share with you how they caught him. Do you know how they did that? They used Vinny's epithumia against him. Follow along with me here. I want to take a look at verse 14 again. What they did as you look at this verse is they lured him and they enticed him and his desire drove him into this little cage. Think about it. I mean, they placed a couple traps in the area where they knew he was hanging out. And you'd, you know, many of you had gone out looking for him, and you'd see him, and you'd call him, and he was, he was taken off. He wasn't coming in. And so they put these cages out there, and they put all kinds of delicious foods in there, and they put them inside the cage. I'm told that there were sausages, and there were hamburgers, and there was anything that you can think of, stinky things, whatever people could think of to lure him in and draw him in. Well, that's what they did. They put it out there, and they thought, you know, we're going to use his epithumia, and we're going to use that against him. And eventually, Vinny came walking along and he smelled that food. I don't know what was in the cage. But I like what James says in verse 14. He says that each is enticed by his own desire. And the Greek structure there says by his own unique desire. You see? Each is enticed by his own unique desire. Vinny was hungry. And he wanted something to eat, and that food smelled really good to him. And his desire pushed him forward. His desire drove him forward, and he got closer, and he discovered as he could see it, you know, that actually looks pretty good. That looks, it smells good. It looks good. And it was just calling his name. His desire was driving him. James says that each one of you 
has your own unique desire. That's what he says here. It's unique. And I wonder, Peg, what would have happened if you'd put a coffee can full of worms in there? Probably wouldn't have been very attractive to him. Might have been attractive to a fish. But Vinny probably wasn't too interested in that. He probably never would have gone after that. I want you to know, friends, that each one of you as you sit here have your own unique desires, your own combinations of things that really trip your trigger. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. As you sit here, you can imagine it in your own mind. I know that you can. What is it? I can tell you that if you want to trap me, if you want to catch me, you're not doing it with a plate of broccoli. That's, as you can tell, right? That's not happening. And I know that there are some things that tempt some people that have absolutely no appeal to me. There are certain temptations, there are certain sins that just aren't attractive to me and they're not going to catch my interest. But like Vinny, with the right bait, you're going to get my attention. With the right bait, each of you are going to begin to look a little bit more closely. With the right combination of epithumia, you're going to look at that and you're going to say, hmm, that really looks kind of good. You're going to look at it and you're going to think, hmm, that's not that bad. And so you edge just a little bit closer. And you edge just a little bit closer. And as you get a little bit closer to it, you look at it and you say, you know what? Nobody's going to notice. You might look over your shoulder and you can see that nobody's looking. And so you edge closer and closer. And nobody is going to notice I could do this and I could totally get away with this, right? I could get away with this. I could totally pull this off. And it would be so satisfying. And then your epithumia begins to build and it begins to take over. And I want you to see what happens. Take a look at verse 15. James says, then desire, this is epithumia, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, at some point in the process, friends, at some point, you have reached the point of no return. Do you understand? You have reached the point where if you wanted to turn back, you couldn't do it anyway. And that's what James is talking about here. You know, when Beth and I first found that we were expecting our very first bundle of joy, we were so excited, as, as most people are. In fact, we're still excited about each of our little bundles of joy. But what we found was, when we found out that we were expecting one way or another, we obtained a copy, and I don't know if it came from your mom, Beth, or if we had gotten it, it seems like it probably came from your mom. We obtained a copy of the Mayo Clinic Guide to Pregnancy and Baby's First Year. I've told you about that before. And week by week, we followed along our little baby's development from conception to birth. And I realized early on that you have to be careful because you never want to read ahead to chapter 40. Do you know what happens in chapter 40? You see, by chapter 40, the tiny little thing that has been conceived has made its way through the gestational period, and he's fully grown. And it's at that point that you realize, at some point, one way or another, this thing is coming out. Conception is great. Gestation is, is fun. It's fun to follow it and look at it and enjoy it. But birth, birth is a little bit fearful. Birth can cause a little bit of anxiety, can't it? And that was even more true when James wrote this letter. Did you know that? You see, when James wrote this letter, they didn't have beautiful and sanitary birthing rooms. They didn't have epidurals. Birth was going to be a very, very painful process, and oftentimes people died from it. And I want you to know that when that baby is born, when you finally give birth to it and it comes home, absolutely everything changes. Everything is different. Your whole entire life changes. Now, I think that analogy is a great analogy 
for the process of temptation and sin. Conception of your epithumia, it's a lot of fun. It's great. It's very enticing. And it seems like it's going to be a great time. And you may even find a great deal of satisfaction in the moment. You may enjoy the gestational period by flirting and by messing around with sin. You may love entertaining it. You may love to think of what the experience might be like for you. You may enjoy watching your epithumia as it makes its way through the gestational period, as it makes its way through the developmental stages. But I want you to know, friends, listen very closely. At some point, at some point, that sin is going to be fully grown and it's coming out. And when it's born, it's going to change absolutely everything from that point forward. But this is where the, the analogy breaks down a little bit because when babies are born, they bring joy and they bring happiness to the parents and we're all excited about that. But listen, when sin is born, look at verse 15 again. When sin is born, what does it bring? It brings forth death. It's a killer. It's born and then it instantly turns on you. As soon as it's born, it's not a little bundle of joy. It's born a killer and it will destroy you instantly. Well, for over three weeks... Vinny ran around evading people and evading captivity and frustrating people. But eventually, his epithumia got the best of him. The bait smelled too good. And he was pushed forward by his own desire. And that bait lured him in. And he probably thought in his little dog mind that he could walk in and just grab the food that looked so good and he could take off running. But he was wrong. Do you know what happened? You see, he was driven by his own passion and he thought he would just grab it. He was driven by his own desire, driven by his own uncontrollable instinct. He couldn't resist anymore. And so he stepped inside that cage and he thought, I'm going to grab this cheeseburger. I'm going to grab whatever it was. And the door slammed shut behind him and he was trapped. He couldn't get out. Because Vinny is a pet in a loving home for him, it meant a bath, a trip to the vet, And it probably meant a nice warm bed for him to sleep in. But listen, friends, because you and I are eternal souls in a much higher stakes game, for us it means something very different. For us it means death, and it means eternal torment away from God. It's not fun. Are you following? Listen, it's really important that you understand that right now this room is filled with people who have their own unique combination of desires and they're being enticed by them, and they're being driven forward by them. I'm reminded of the painter who takes his palette, and on his palette he places red paint and blue paint and yellow paint, maybe some black and some white. And if you put that palette in the hands of the right artist, he can skillfully mix those colors to come up with each individual tint and to come up with each individual shade of coloring that he needs to make it just an elaborate and beautiful painting. Maybe that desire that's enticing you right now is three parts greed, two parts pride, three parts self-pity, and the shade of epithumia that comes out, the shade that's driving you into a trap, pushes you into a trap that's baited with extra cash in the till at work, or extra meals on your work expense card. It's really not you after all, is it? I mean, the company is just so cheap. They have so much money and they pay you too little. They don't appreciate you. I mean, you put in all this extra effort and they've never given you a dime for it. They've never even recognized you for it. I mean, it's your company's fault. Or maybe you have a medical condition and you have tons of bills and God could have stopped you from having that condition if He wanted to and He didn't do it. And so now you spend all your money on medication. It's not your fault. You just have no money for lunch. 
And so now you're going to grab a bite, and it's really God's fault, isn't it? Friends, each one of you has a unique combination of circumstances in your world right now. And I want you to think about that. Maybe your husband never really listens to you anymore. Maybe you feel unattractive. And there's this guy at work that always notices how nice your hair looks. And it's this combination that is the epithumia that is driving you to look too closely at the bait of an adulterous affair. It's a trap. Don't step into it. Because at the end of it is death. It will destroy you. Young people, unmarried people, I want you to listen to me. Guard your purity. Listen closely. Don't be lured by the bait of easy sex. Because once you have conceived it in your heart, your passion for it will continue to grow and it will gestate. And it won't be long before the opportunity is going to present itself and you'll find your epithumia driving you to seize the bait and to snatch it up and to take action that's going to destroy you. Don't go to places where there's opportunity for that to happen. Don't hang out with people with whom that is the norm. Don't watch media that promotes it. Guard your purity. Maybe there are people here who are nurturing bitterness and resentment in your hearts. Maybe there was a certain set of circumstances that you could not control and you feel like you didn't deserve some disappointment or unfortunate event that happened in your life and you feel God could have stopped it if He wanted to and He didn't do it. And now you're looking at a trap that's filled with the bait of doubt and it's filled with the bait of anger and you edge closer to the bait by not wanting to be in a place where you're sitting in a church where you're hearing the Word of God. You don't want to be in a place filled with people you view as hypocrites. You're being driven by your epithumia. I want you to know that. Don't step into that trap. Don't step into the trap where you cut yourself off from the hope of reconciliation with God because it will destroy you. Friends, I don't know what all the unique baits are that are out there luring you and thrusting you forward. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's homosexuality. Maybe it's crippling self-pity. If you allow it to be conceived eventually, after the gestational period is over, it's going to come out. And at the end, there's death. And so quickly, I want to give you a few steps to help you conquer your epithumia. First, you need to own the fact. Listen closely. Own the fact that your temptation and your sin are a product of your own uncontrollable desire. You have to own the fact that you did it. You have to own the fact that it's within yourself. Don't deflect. Don't blame other people. Don't ever blame God. Don't blame your circumstances. Own it and admit it and admit that you could choose differently and you refuse to do it. Admit that because if you don't do that, you can never move on to step two. Secondly, you need to confess it and you need to repent. But if you blame other people, if you blame God, you'll never be able to honestly confess and repent because you won't take responsibility for it. You'll feel you have nothing to repent for. Do you understand? You'll continue to justify it as someone else's fault. But you have to acknowledge that you are being thrust forward, not by circumstances, but by your own lust. You're being thrust forward by your own desire, and you must ask God to cleanse you and to purify you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Thirdly, you need to invest time in studying the Word of God. Can I just tell you that? It is stunning to me how often people come to me to tell me about a particular problem that they have or a particular sin that they're struggling with, and when I ask them, how are you doing in the Word of God, 
You know what they say? Well, I'm not really spending any time in the Word of God. How are you doing in the Word of God? Well, I'm not doing very well, to be perfectly honest with you. But I mean, you know, I, when I come to church, I listen to you preach, and I, I even take notes. I listen to everything you say. I listen to this radio station. I listen to that podcast. All of these different things. But friends, they're not in the Word of God. They're not in a private time in the Word of God. Do you know that Jesus told the disciples, you are clean because of what? Because of the Word. Get into the Word of God. It's cathartic. It cleanses. You are made clean because of it. Paul says, you're cleansed and you're sanctified by the Word of God. The Word of God will protect you from erring. It will protect you from wandering off of the path. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, we talked about this in the book of Ephesians. What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must be thrust forward. You must be guided by the direction of the Holy Spirit. You have to allow Him to guide your decisions. You have to allow Him to direct your thoughts. Galatians 5.16, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not, this is so key, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Do you see that? If you are walking by the Spirit, then your epithumia cannot push you into the trap. Friends, it is so important that we are people who are serious about dealing with our sin. Can I say that again? You need to allow this to sink in. It is very important that we are people who are serious about dealing with sin. It's important that we be people who are serious about our purification. You see, if there's not a willingness to take an honest look at ourselves... If there's not a willingness to confess sin and to weed it out of our lives, then according to James's instruction, you need to consider the possibility that your faith may not be genuine. If you're unwilling to deal with it, there's a possibility that you're not really a believer. Father, I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you, God, that you're willing to forgive all those who come to you with honest and open hearts. I thank you that you're willing to forgive all of those who come to you confessing their sin and committing to turn from it. And Lord, right now, if there are people in this room who do not have the confidence in their hearts that they have a genuine soul-saving relationship, a soul-saving faith in Jesus Christ to build a relationship with you. I pray, God, that right now you would grant it to them to cry out to you even as we sit here this morning and to confess their sin to you. And I pray, God, that as they do that in faith, that you will be faithful to your word and that you would cleanse them from all of their unrighteousness. And I pray, God, that you would give them right standing before you today. Fill them with the confidence and the peace of true salvation. Lord, for all of those who are in this room this morning, who are believers, who are flirting with sinful desire in their hearts, and they're edging closer and closer to get a better look, refusing to walk away from sinful circumstances, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring a strong conviction to their hearts, and that you would correct them, and that you would prune them. And I pray, God, that they would not edge any closer to the trap of their own desire, but that they would turn and they would run from it and that they would run into the safe place of your presence where their hearts may be strengthened and may be encouraged. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people whose hearts desire to be purified and cleansed to your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name.